During 2015, Uber was going through rapid scalability. The internal engineering systems of the ride-sharing company were constantly tested by the growing user base. Over the next two years, the number of internal services at Uber would grow from 500 to 2,000, and standardizing the monitoring of all these different services became a priority. After working with a variety of available tools, Uber's engineering team decided that something new needed to be built internally. Jaeger is an open-source distributed tracing tool that provides observability features throughout Uber's microservices architecture. Yuri Shkuro is an engineer at Uber, where he works on Jaeger and other infrastructure projects. Yuri joins the show to discuss the history of engineering at Uber, the architecture of Jaeger, and the requirements for building and scaling a distributed tracing tool. To find all of our episodes about Uber and other scalable engineering organizations, you can check out the Software Daily app for iOS or Android, and you can search for Uber and find those episodes. Yuri Shkuro, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah, it's nice to have you. You've been at Uber since 2015. You've seen the rapid scalability of the company. Describe your experience back when Uber was going through that early hypergrowth. Uh, when I started, I kind of started working on tracing from almost from the beginning. And at the time, we had roughly a few hundred microservices. I think 500 was the upper bound. And roughly the same number of engineers, ironically. And yeah, within a couple of years, it exploded to several thousands. Uh, today, we, we don't really count them, but it's above 3,000. And so, yeah, that was kind of an interesting transition where a lot of functionality moved out of the old two monoliths into microservices. And the resulting complexity that was created is it's, it's actually a question how much microservices are beneficial versus the resulting complexity in my mind. <laughs> really? Okay. Can we go a little bit deeper on that? Let's start off with controversy. Yeah, well, microservices are in general kind of hard thing to do right, as many people know. And there are many aspects to that. The basic ones that people typically think of just the infrastructure concerns, like how do you do service discovery, deployments, sort of management, multi-zone, multi-region setups, and, and all of that, like distributed systems stuff. That obviously takes a lot of infrastructure resources and teams to build and there aren't really great examples in open source still it's kind of you can probably piece together from multiple different products but when we were starting almost all of uber infra is kind of internally built not counting like data stores but and maybe mesos is one of the like biggest infra parts which is not in in-house built but a lot of stuff is built manually because there was no real good scalable alternatives to microservices so that's one aspect but the other aspect that people don't often talk about i think is the actual complexity that we create. And with complexity come a lot of other issues. One of them is reliability, because now that like everyone knows if you ever read any distributed systems paper, it says, well, communications are not reliable, it's a given. And so microservices, says, let's just double bet on this non-reliable communications to build very complex systems, right? And so the reliability of the whole system is, is typically much worse because you like increase the number of failure modes exponentially. And so something needs to be done about this. The, the actual design of the system needs to account for all of these things. So that's extra complexity. And I guess like my 
close to home thing is the observability of this whole system is is, is much harder without tools like distributed tracing. So I can go more on that. It's it's really I think is a big topic that people don't realize that uh, microservices are always painted with like rosy brush to me. Well, yeah, let's talk about that a little bit more. We will get into distributed tracing and, and Jaeger and so on, but I've heard a couple of other very experienced engineers tell me some form of this that maybe we're going down a path of insanity. Maybe we shouldn't be doing this whole microservices thing. Maybe we should all be figuring out how to run monoliths better. Is there an alternative to microservices? There is definitely an alternative. I think the monolith is obviously an alternative and which works because Facebook is still running monolith for a large part of their web presence, right? So we know that it's doable. It also, like it scales, it has the rapid deployment. So one of the big reasons people quote for microservices adoption is that it allows you to scale your organization better because you focus teams working on like smaller parts of the system so that they are not affected by the other parts, which sounds good. I mean, it's, that's probably true, but there is a flip side to that is that, well, first of all, none of the components in the system are really working by themselves. So yes, you introduce a certain kind of autonomous behavior to, to a team, but at the same time, they're not solving the overall business problem by themselves. They still, especially if they're somewhere in the middle of the stack, like a payment system or whatever, fulfillment system, they still integrate with a lot of other stuff and integrations are actually harder in that way than if it was all in a single code base and in a single application potentially. So this is, I guess, I don't know if there are other alternatives. I mean, monolith doesn't have to be like one single monolith for the whole company. It could be potentially like several big monoliths, maybe partitioned by business domains. But there's still a huge difference between having, I don't know, five monoliths in the company versus 3,000 microservices. So in this period of time when Uber was breaking up its monolith and it was moving to microservices, I believe that from 2015 to 2017, the number of services at Uber grew from 500 to 2,000. Describe how Uber's infrastructure evolved over that period of time. So when I just joined, we were still doing effectively pre-allocating hosts to individual services, and they were running on bare metal, which is a very kind of a manual way of, of doing deployments, because if you host those down, sort of your capacity of the service or whatever application is decreased, and you kind of go, have to go manually restart it or do something about it. So there's a lot of operational overhead with that approach, obviously, and people, and we, we haven't had the time thinking like Mesos or Kubernetes. And so that was one big push to, to that, which I think in a way helped with, with developing more microservices because in, in that old world, it was actually much easier to just add functionality to an existing service because you didn't have to deal with all this provisioning and infrastructure set up for a new cluster of, of hosts. So Mesos, once we migrated to Mesos, that kind of went away because it, it gives us dynamic allocations, which is arguably much better situation in, in any case, no matter how you deploy the applications. The other part that we were working very heavily on was some equivalent of a service mesh. I think traditionally 
back even before I joined, Uber was uh, routing most of the traffic with HA proxy, which was fine when you had these static uh, pools of hosts. But as we were moving to more dynamic uh, placements of services, that like with HA proxy, it wasn't that easy to actually update configs on the fly, and there was not good mechanism for that. I mean, we built something, but eventually we deprecated that in favor of a, like real service mesh. And with the service mesh, Uber had an interesting story. We we developed this internally product called Hyperbun, which didn't do well. One of the reasons was is because it was implemented in Node and obviously had performance issues because of that. But it also, by design, it was kind of introducing uh, more hops than the normal service mesh would do. And so we eventually migrated to more or less what people think of service mesh today, except that we're not running service mesh agents as a sidecar, we are running them as a host agent. That's why it's not a real true service mesh because the host agent, it's efficient because you, you have only single hop, you, your service talks to the local host agent and then that agent forwards directly to, to the destination service. So one extra hop on the network, but because it's an agent, it doesn't really know things like, well, who is calling me? What's the identity of the call? And so it is not able to support things like service authentication explicitly. So you could do it on application side, but not through the infrastructure. And so we are, even today, we're still, that's work in progress. We are migrating to more like a true service mesh similar to Envoy, which runs as a sidecar and then allows us to do more things on the infrastructure component than like rather than pushing them into application space. Yeah, we did a previous show about that. So this idea of the service proxy or the service mesh, this is a standardized library or sidecar that rides alongside your service. And the service proxy or the service library, it fulfills some standardized sets of roles that you would want along with every service. It might give you observability features or rate limiting features. How have those, that suite of features that you've gotten out of the service proxy, how have those evolved over that period of time that you've been at Uber? So I think primarily we were focusing on sort of the routing function of the sidecar, meaning that it takes care of service discovery. We also built a fairly advanced some people say more advanced than, let's say, Istio a control plane, which allows us to do things like automatic rerouting of traffic to different zones, to different regions even. You can drain traffic like um, gradually from one location to another. So those are the, the main like routing functions that our service mesh performs. And I'm actually not sure if it does the rate limiting. The previous version, the Hyperband, did try to do rate limiting, and it was a challenging problem as well because it uh, sometimes didn't work well. So in terms of observability, mostly what we get from service mesh are the metrics, like service-to-service metrics for RPC calls, which is very handy because we even built internally a tool in, in our in observability team a tool which automatically detects those metrics. So if, you, if you're if a service owner, you come to a page and suddenly it populates a whole dashboard for you with a, a whole tons of infrastructure metrics emitted by various infrastructure components that we know your 
service is using. It's like auto-detected, which is very awesome because you don't have to generate these dashboards or manually configure them. There's like very standardized and, uh, and auto-discovered. So the, the service mesh metrics is one of them. It just comes up and you can get a whole bunch of uh, like uh, what error counts, how many calls to which targets you're doing, things like that. So whoever stands up a service at Uber, whether they're standing up a microservice under Uber Eats or they're deploying a new pricing algorithm that is in its own service, everybody wants a certain stack of features. Everybody wants distributed tracing, for example. Let's talk about distributed tracing because that's what you're an expert in. Explain what distributed tracing is. Distributed tracing is observability technique that is different from many other techniques in that it monitors not a behavior of a single component of the architecture, but rather a behavior of the single request which is executed by the overall architecture. So you think about like a request to Netflix homepage. It actually hits, if I remember, about 20, 25 different microservices, right? At Uber, a similar situation, the request for driver go online from the mobile app as it comes to the data center, it hits about 30 microservices doing around 100 RPC calls as part of that one single request execution. So what distributed tracing does, it actually looks at, it traces this whole request through all these components of the architecture and gives you various information about it, like timing, causality, who called whom. And you can make it as rich as you want, really, because the instrumentation uh, supports uh, like tags and logs. You can attach timed events to the data. But at the bare minimum, you you get the like sort of the view of the whole request through the system. And it's almost like a distributed stack trace. Like if you compare it with a monolith, if you had a, an exception somewhere in a monolith, you get back a stack trace which gives you the exact path that the request took to that point. And that's kind of what the distributed trace is, except it's, it's not like just one single sequence, it's actually a tree of different calls that you made to multiple services. Because you have this standardization across different services at Uber, thanks to your service library or your service proxy, I'm guessing that at this point it's safe to assume that every service is going to get instrumented properly with the distributed tracing infrastructure out of the box? Actually, no. This is a big misconception about service meshes, I think. If you read the fine print of every service mesh, they say that, yes, you can get distributed tracing from them, provided that the application forwards a certain headers or some context. And in my experience, the forwarding actually is the hardest part because it does require instrumentation in their application. You cannot just take an application as a black box and connect them by the sidecar and, and try to get a, a trace out of it because the reason is very simple. Like if you have 10 requests coming into your application and each of those requests makes five downstream calls, so you have 50 uh, requests going out of your application, how do you correlate those 10 on the inbound and 50 on the outbound? The service mesh cannot do that as a basically treating application as a black box. You need something in the application that actually provides that correlation. And that's what uh, instrumentation for distributed tracing is primarily doing. It Like projects like OpenTracing and OpenTelemetry that I'm deeply involved with, they give you like a standard instrumentation that in many cases you don't have to actually write any code. You can just attach a jar to your process or do some very minimal instantiation of, of a tracer. But once you've done that, that 
done, yes, you get full tracing. And at that point, ironically, the tracing that additional tracing that can be provided by the sidecar becomes sort of not that useful. It gives you an extra hop in a, in a call graph, but you don't need that. Like we're actually not using that at Uber at all. The service mesh does not provide tracing. Let's go back to the point at which you joined Uber in 2015. Did you originally join to work on the distributed tracing team? Uh, no, I joined to work on the infrastructure overall, uh, because before that I was working in investment bank, mostly on the product side. So I kind of wanted to try out infrastructure work, always was interested in that. And in New York, there was only like 10 people in New York office at the time. And the only infrastructure in New York was observability and specifically the metrics team. So they were working on what later became known as M3DB, our open source metrics uh, database. So I joined that team, but they, they were kind of were done at that point with the first version. And so they didn't necessarily need my help. And so I started looking for other projects in the observability space and distributed tracing was one big gap that no one was actually doing at Uber. And so we decided to make it a mission of our team. Okay. And when you started that distributed tracing team focus, what was the lay of the land in terms of tooling at Uber and open source tooling that was available? What was the set of things that you were able to pull from to start to think about what Uber's distributed tracing stack would look like? There are a couple things which affected the direction. One was that Uber in the previous year, maybe before I joined, built its own RPC framework and protocol called T-Channel. I mean, you can think of it somewhat similar to gRPC. It's its own binary protocol with its own frame format, etc. And it was implemented in multiple languages uh, using Thrift as a uh, encoding. Uh, and one of the features of that overall design was that they've uh, they've envisioned tracing being built in into the client libraries uh, of that RPC framework. And so there are not a lot of services at the time using that, but there are some. And so we already had sort of distributed tracing instrumentation in a bunch of services at Uber. But what we didn't have is a, any tracing backend that would collect them. Well, there was a, like a prototype backend running using Zipkin server with some other custom components built in Node.js and like using React as a store, I think. So it was kind of very non-standard setup of Zipkin. And so what we've done is we decided, well, first let's build a proper kind of production worthy tracing backend and that's what we've done we didn't have uh, user interface experts in our team at the time so we decided well we'll just use zipkin front end for this but because the T-channel protocol was already sending data in a custom format, which wasn't Zipkin. We had to build some collection pipeline that would store data in a way that Zipkin could understand. So that was effectively the birth of Jaeger, is the, the collectors that were receiving all these spans from T-channel and storing them in Cassandra in a way that Zipkin could then read them to, to display. So that's how it started. And then once that was in place, we were 
kind of covered uh, for a while on the T-channel side, but a lot of services at Uber were still communicating using plain HTTP, sometimes with JSON format, sometimes with Thrift, but not using any specific framework other than whatever the language provided, like sometimes very low-level HTTP frameworks in the language. And so we needed an instrumentation for those services as well, because they were not traced at all. And that's where we realized that there is no real good solution in open source, which would be some sort of a standard. So we could obviously try to use Zipkin client libraries for that, but Zipkin libraries were in an interesting state because they were not officially maintained by the Zipkin project. Maybe Java was Java, like a brave library was partially at the time maintained by Zipkin project. Eventually it became full sub project, but all other languages were done by people ad hoc. There was some, some person would write a Python version or like a Node.js version. And there was a lot of inconsistencies between those libraries in terms of what terminology they used, how you interacted them, what API they used. And the quality of those libraries was also very varied. And so we wanted, uh, like if we were, if I was to go to all the service developers at Uber and say, you have to instrument your services with something, I would have prefer to have some sort of a standard and official open source API that I could give them to to do that. And that's how open tracing was effectively born because when I went to a Zipkin workshop, there were like dozen people there and they all had that exact same problem and they said well why don't we do just that uh, and and that's we started open tracing which would provide you a very unified way of putting instrumentation into a service without worrying about what tracing backend you're going to use what even tracing library you're going to use as long as your your application code speaks to a certain api you're covered and so that that was kind of the next evolution of of our tracing team and, and our work because from that point we we spent sometime building client libraries for Jaeger that would support open tracing API and the way the API was developed it, it evolved into structure like a data structure which was slightly more rich than Zipkin what was Zipkin was supporting and so we had to invent our own data model in Jaeger uh, our own storage and so eventually like Jaeger became a system completely separate from Zipkin because we just like all the components were different at that point. So you you touched on some vocabulary there that I'd like to clarify, and and I'd like to just give a quick overview for distributed tracing. We've done some shows previously about distributed tracing. We've probably done two or three shows about it, and people people who are unfamiliar should definitely go back because this will probably be an advanced distributed tracing show. But I just want to explain how, how I see distributed tracing. You can tell me where I'm wrong. In a typical trace, you might have three or four services, and a request to service A might be might need to make a request to service B, and then service B might need to make a request to service C. Service C might need to request service D. And if you are just the person who is making the request to service A, and there's some kind of failure along the way or some kind of latency, you don't have any idea what caused that failure without distributed tracing. So distributed tracing can give you this series of spans. So every time this request is propagated through service A and then B and then C and then D, the requests will include some kind of trace ID so that this trace ID is propagated through the different services. And that way we can figure out how long 
is the service request that's chaining through these different services, how long is it spending in each of these downstream services? And then the end result of that trace is these different spans. Each span is some period of time that was spent in one of the services in the chain. So if you have service A, B, C, and D, you might have four spans associated with that. Is that a good basic overview of distributed tracing? Yes, it's conceptually, it's very close. I wouldn't necessarily say that distributed tracing has to use a notion of spans. It's better to think of it as there is a certain number of events happening in each service, some of them purely internal, some of them are events like I send a request to another service or I receive the response to from another service. So those would be two events, right? So span is just a, a simplification of that event model where you group the start and end events of certain operation and you call them a span. But conceptually, it's still underlying there's like certain events, certain trace points in your application where you grab the trace ID that you mentioned and you grab sort of another piece of information, which is a causality. Who was the previous event that led the execution to your point, right? And so you construct a graph, directed a cyclic graph of those events. But again, if you're thinking about a span model, which is a simplification, then you typically for RPC graph, it would be a tree, a very simple tree. Whereas like with the with, there are other tracing systems which are actually using like raw events, and in those events, the tree may not the, it may not necessarily be a tree. It could be actually a graph with like it's not going to have loops, but it's going to have uh, sort of it's not a, it's not a tree. So yeah, I, I mean overall, I think uh, you're pretty close. There's also um, things like if you think about a typical server which receives requests and and sends downstream requests, then even in a span model that in a situation where you describe A, B, C, D, you might have more than one span per service because you typically have a span for your inbound request where you received it and you sent a response. And then you would have a so-called client span for every call you make downstream. Again, there's a start and, a, and a, when you receive the response back. So typically, yeah, this, this is a bit more complicated, but on a high level, you're pretty close. Got it. Okay, so you were giving us a little bit of history about how the open tracing project got started. Could could you refine what you said about open tracing? Why did open tracing get started and what how does open tracing relate to the Zipkin project? Uh, sure. So Zipkin project is primarily a tracing backend. So is Jaeger, so is Amazon X-Ray or Google Stack Driver or many of the APM vendor solutions. So typically the backends, they don't really care how you get the data to them as long as you get the data. And then the backends are responsible for displaying it, visualizing it, aggregating some, like doing maybe even machine learning, alerting, things like that. But they don't really care about how that data is extracted from the application. And that's the part of, of the instrumentation in the application. Instrumentation, it's a kind of a bridge between your application and so-called trace points where these events that I just described get captured, right? So your application uh, tells the library that doing tracing saying, oh, I just send the request. Oh, I received the response, right? So that's the interaction. And so the open tracing is, is the API for that interaction. It says like if your application wants to talk to uh, sort of send event to tracing backend, well, you could use a very bespoke library, like you could pick a Zipkin Java library and talk to its precise API that that library defined. And then your, the, the, the tracing data that you collect from your request will be flowing into Zipkin backend. 
But if you do that, then you kind of tie yourself to Zipkin backend or at least to Zipkin data format. And so if you want to switch a vendor or like another open source tracing system, then it's pretty expensive to change your instrumentation because now you have to go and in all those trace points, like call a slightly different API potentially, even though it's maybe the same data that you're passing, but the API may be called instead of start span, it's called begin span, right? So it's like <laughs> there's like silly changes that you have to make, but there are a lot of them. In some cases, there may be conceptual changes as well, but most tracing systems are actually pretty close in that regard in the conceptual data model. And so the open tracing was designed to abstract those differences away so that you you have a single conceptual data model and a single API that your application talks to and that beyond that API, whatever implementation you plug in would correspond to the tracing backend that you're using. So if you want to use Zipkin backend, you would plug in a, a tracing library for Zipkin, which implements an open tracing API, or you do the same thing for Jaeger or Stackdriver. So that's the open tracing API. It's almost like the equivalent of it would be for people who are in Java space, SLA4J, right? It's a very standard API in Java that almost everyone uses because all it does, it says, this is how you log information. It doesn't tell you what happens to that information after you logged it. You actually need to instantiate a specific logger, which could be like a SLA4J comes with a simple implementation, but there is also a logback, a log4j, there is a very uh, rich uh, login library, so you could instantiate those. But your application doesn't care at that point. It, like it all, You already written all the log statements that you needed to write. They're not going to change just because you flipped a tracing instrument, uh, like a login instrumentation, sorry, login instance. And that's the same approach that OpenTracing to. Open Tracing is an API that your application interacts with, and then whichever like implementation you instantiate is specific to what tracing backend you're using. Okay, so at this point, the listener probably understands that there's a number of different components that fit into distributed tracing. Every application, every service needs to do some work to be sending its information to the distributed tracing library that is sitting adjacent to that service and then that tracing information has to be aggregated somewhere it has to be stored somewhere and in order to do all this work there's an architecture that fits together as Jaeger at Uber so the the Jaeger architecture includes the Jaeger client the Jaeger agent the Jaeger collector includes uh, Cassandra, I believe, which is storing some of these traces. Give an overview of the Jaeger architecture. So Jaeger project, because we were involved in open tracing from the beginning, we decided that we're going to draw a line between what we provide as part of the project. And having open tracing sort of project in place was very useful because we didn't have to spend cycles on implementing the actual instrumentation. Let's say your service is using gRPC framework. So you need to have some sort of middleware built for gRPC that captures the events from gRPC and pushes them into an open tracing API. So we didn't have to write it because open tracing API is open source, gRPC is open source, so the middleware can be written as open source by someone, right? And 
what we the only thing we needed to write was the sort of the implementation of the open tracing API and that's what you refer to as Jaeger clients right so those we did have to implement that actually is now changing with open tracing uh, sorry with the open telemetry project because that one will come with a standard implementation so in the future we may discope Jaeger slightly even more and say we don't need to keep maintaining the Jaeger clients because there's not that much difference in them compared to open telemetry standard SDK but what the Jaeger clients are doing they they take in this open tracing API code they convert the data into Jaeger span data and they ship it to to Jaeger backend and now in terms of Jaeger architecture there are multiple ways actually that you can deploy Jaeger the way we deploy it at Uber is we have an agent running on every host and the benefit of the agent is that your client libraries don't need to be configured to know where the Jaeger backend actually lives they can just send to a specific port on a local host, and that's it. That's so the, the configuration is like it's actually there's zero configuration for Jaeger client libraries in at Uber in production. And then the agents when they deploy, they kind of have their own infrastructure and they know where to find the collectors. But the alternative way is that you can also reconfigure your client uh, Jaeger client to send data directly to the collector using HTTP request, for example, and thrift encoding. So that's an alternative. But then you kind of need to know whether the collectors are where the locations are. You probably need some sort of either virtual IP or a DNS name and do some load balancing on the backend. So we didn't do that because that's actually more complication on the client side that we didn't have to uh, deal with when we just run the agents. Plus running agents have some other benefits for us. And then what collector does is in in a very simple case, it just accepts all these spans being sent by all the applications or in our case, by all the agents uh, and stores them to the database. Uh, Jaeger supports not just Cassandra. You can run Elasticsearch out of the box from Jaeger. And recently we've implemented a plugin framework where people can implement storage support for other storage types like uh, InfluxDB was recently implemented and Couchbase, I think, is still in development. But Cassandra and Elasticsearch are supported out of the box. And then a third part of Jaeger sort of backend is Jaeger query service, which is another microservice which serves the front end, JavaScript-based, React-based front end, and then it also does the reads from the database and does the translation. So this is like a very minimal setup that you need for Jaeger. Internally, we also have other things. We have a, a data pipeline where spans are all sent to Kafka. And on Kafka, we run various fling jobs that perform aggregations, uh, like building the service dependency graphs, building tracing quality metrics for, for people, and all kind of other interesting stuff that we're still working on. So yeah, there's sometimes even more complications in the Jaeger infrastructure. You could you could actually put Kafka in the middle between collector and an ingester, which is what we're using at, at Uber. Uh, it was recently released as open source as well, but that's for, it, it gives like various other benefits. It obviously complicates the deployment, but it gives the benefits of a more flexible system in terms of if you get like traffic spikes. Okay, let's zoom in on these different components a little bit. So on every service, if I understand correctly, like whether I'm the Uber Eats service or the pricing data service, I have, if I want distributed tracing, I've got Jaeger client and Jaeger agent. Is that correct? So Jaeger client is a library that runs inside this service uh, process, and Jaeger agent is a host agent. It's like runs once per host. Oh, okay. And are there, so there's multiple services deployed to each host because you've got multiple containers on each host? 
Correct. Yes, the mesos can schedule basically multiple workloads on a given host. Got it. So the Jaeger client is a per container module, and then each of those containers is forwarding their uh, particular services information to the Jaeger agent, which is a host-level system. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then the Jaeger agent is is taking all of those cl- that client information and forwarding it to the collector, and then the collector is just storing it in Cassandra. Correct. Okay. So what did you learn from Uber's earlier distributed tracing work that you put into the Jaeger project? It's a good question whether there is a lot of learning. I think one thing, I wouldn't call it so much learning because we decided to do that by design upfront, but the way we designed communication between clients and the backend was bidirectional which is not how many other tracing libraries are implemented, including like open sensors and open telemetry. So what we had was a feedback loop. And the reason we did that is because one of the challenges with tracing is that we cannot trace every single request in production because we're going to generate so much data that it's probably going to be more network traffic than the actual business traffic. And so most tracing systems in production today employ some sort of sampling. And we sample pretty heavily, actually, at Uber, but I can't give a specific number because that's the the reason for the feedback loop. We implemented so-called adaptive sampling, where a sampling decision is made somewhere in the client at the very first span of a trace, where the, like the trace ID is first time created. And that decision is propagated with the trace ID through the rest of the call graph so that every service knows whether that request needs to be uh, like traced and, and the data needs to be collected or not. And like, I mean, I think we started originally with maybe one in a thousand probability of of these uh, sampling decisions. But eventually we evolved it into adaptive sampling because with a fixed probability, the challenge that we had was if you take any service each service in general exposes typically more than one endpoint. And those endpoints very often have very different QPS, like query per per second, or like a volume of traffic. So for example, you can have, I don't know, your read requests may be 10 times more frequent than your write requests, something like that. And so if you're using a single probability for that service, then you're getting much fewer traces from your low QPS uh, endpoints. And if the probability is very small, like one in a thousand or even less, then potentially you are not getting any data whatsoever from certain endpoints. And that's kind of a bummer because you want to see what happens in your architecture, how all the services connected, what the dependencies between services are. And so we didn't like that. And so we've implemented a different type of sampling where a probability was not per whole service or per whole organization, but actually per service comma endpoint. And that, that was great because like I, I can have one endpoint being traced with 100% because it's like so rare that uh, I, we can capture all the data, whereas the high QPS endpoint is going to be traced with a very low probability. We're still getting less, a lot of data about it. But once you move to that mode, then and if you start counting how many services and endpoints actually exist in, in Uber, uh, so 3,000 microservices times, I don't know, on average, maybe 10 endpoints, there's like a lot of probabilities. No one can manage that manually. So we 
we've built a system which which manages those probabilities automatically by setting a certain target of rate of tracing we want to see from a given or from anything essentially and then calculating what the appropriate probability for that service given the traffic that we're seeing from that service right and then that system also allows us to deal with traffic spikes if, if suddenly you deployed some new function and you start receiving twice as many requests and and that was uh, that functionality required us to build client libraries in a slightly different way than like most of the open source client time libraries at the time where they were having this feedback loop where the probability were constantly recalculated on the back end and flowing through collector to agents back to the clients so that was i think one of the big changes that we had to make to our client space the user of a distributed tracing front end is probably, and, and by front end, I mean the dashboard where I'm looking at my traces and I'm trying to find out what are the problems with my distributed system, or I'm trying to just improve the latencies of my distributed tracing. This user needs to be able to search through these distributed traces or aggregate these distributed traces. Describe what the goals of, when I, when I sit down in front of my distributed tracing front end, what am I trying to accomplish and what do I want my interface to do? That's a very good and interesting question because I gave recently a whole number of talks on, on this showing how you mentioned latency and you when you were describing overall what tracing, how it works, right, the, the spans and the, the call graph, you also mentioned, oh, how long things took. And this is kind of an interesting aspect because... A lot of people are actually thinking of tracing as a performance optimization sort of application performance management tool where you are worried about latency and you want to find things which are slow, right? And that's certainly a very valid use case for tracing. But what I've noticed, like in my experience at Uber, is that that use case never actually got picked up by Uber engineers as as the primary use for tracing. And... I don't know if I know the reasons for that. I can speculate. I think one of the reasons is probably like Uber is still very young and very fast growing uh, system so that we we have like a bigger fish to fry than like worrying about latency. I mean, in some cases where it's like very bad, obviously people worry about it. But there are other aspects of the microservices architecture that tracing is just more useful for us. And specifically that aspect is the complexity. Because the other thing that you want to use tracing for is really for troubleshooting issues in production. And those issues may not necessarily be latency related. In fact, I think it's a kind of a known fact in the industry is that the majority of production outages happen because of the change management, because you release the new version or release the new configuration and something just didn't work as a result, right? And sometimes that didn't work aspect may manifest in the latency, but it can also manifest in all kinds of other ways, right? It may be you are getting bad, like, message format and you're not able to parse it so the, your, your service throws an error something like that or maybe some other service is gone somewhere and you can't even reach it so i mean it's impossible really to enumerate all the possible problems that, that could happen but this is kind of the primary use for tracing at uber is trying to understand okay let's say we have a business matrix how many people are taking trips in new york Right, and we have a sort of an average number during the day, week over week, and suddenly that metrics drops in half. That's obviously a business outage. We need to fix it immediately. But how do you go from that to? And you get an alert about it saying, "Yes, your metrics drop." But how do you go from that to 
to actually finding out what in your 3000 microservices architecture is actually broken. You can look at the history of changes that just went out to production, but given the number of services and teams, those are going to be like thousands of events even in the last hour or so, right? There's like lots of changes going on all the time. So that doesn't help. So tracing is really kind of the only tool that helps us to quickly navigate this complex system and find if not find the actual root cause, but at least pinpoint where the problem is occurring. And that is sort of uh, often more challenging task, finding where the problem is, than, than deciding what the problem is and how to fix it. So like, navigating to the issue is harder. And that's the second use of the distributed tracing that got a lot more usage and a lot more benefits to Uber than purely how I'm going to use tracing for performance optimization. We obviously have both. Like There's some power users who did optimize their services for latency, but this is not a prevalent use case. And so from UI perspective is that you want a system that helps you with either of those. The classic, uh, the Gantt chart view that tracing systems provide, like Jaeger does that, Zipkin does it. Essentially, every tracing system gives you by default the Gantt chart view of the trace. That is very helpful for latency investigation because, well, you can kind of collapse everything and see what the longest part you can do critical path analysis and understand certain things. There are also, I know you've had uh, discussions with uh, Ben Siegelman on your show previously. So Lightstep is building uh, way more advanced tools to actually investigate latency because sometimes even with latency, even though you can see where the latency happens in a single trace, you may not be able to explain why that happens because there may be some contention on the resource by held by some other transactions. And so you need to go into more aggregated processing of the traces to figure out oh, what's the correlated transactions or different traces that hit that resource and why they're contending on it, right? So for, even for latency, you kind of need usually more than one trace view. For, for outage resolution, it depends on how you detect the outage. So uh, one way is you can also do like present the user with the aggregated view of your system behavior saying maybe if they know that the, the specific business metric that fired an alert is tied to a specific endpoint on your front-end API service, right? Let's say riders, I don't know, order trip or maybe uh, put a destination on a map and that thing is not working, right? So you may be able to figure out what endpoint is responsible for that. And so you can go and build an aggregation and plot a graph, a service map for that endpoint, what are all the dependencies and overlay certain metrics information on top of that saying, well, uh, all the requests kind of within the normal latency, within the normal error rates, you can color code them with like whatever the red or green. And that potentially can lead you to a problem where like which service is actually is the source of the problem or that the whole breaking the whole flow there is another way which is what we, we haven't gone into the second into that first uh, approach yet because it actually like allows like it requires a lot of standardization for us to gather all the data we're not there yet but we went into a different approach where you can also detect these types of outages by doing synthetic probing from some service like uh, which may sit outside of your data centers and pretend to to be taking trips right and that service it's not going to do like a huge volume of requests similar to production traffic but it's a it's a periodic uh, request that it sends and says oh I, I know that to take a trip, I need to execute the steps and well, I see that it's not working somewhere. That actually gives us a single trace because 
as soon as that thing fails in that synthetic prober, it can give us a trace ID. And then you can go into the UI and investigate what specifically in that trace ID is failing. So that's a, a different way that you, you may approach sort of using tracing to troubleshoot production issues. Well, there's so much there that we could dive into, but we are a little up against time, and there's a totally different topic I wanted to ask you about. Assuming you're cool talking about it, you were in finance for many years, including 2008, working as an engineer at financial companies that really endured the 2008 financial crisis. And I'm just wondering what it was like to live through 2008 in the middle of the storm. That was not the favorite years, <laughs> certainly. I was working at Morgan Stanley, which was across uh, the street from Lehman Brothers. And so it was fun one day when we come to work and like the, the building, Lehman Brothers building is all surrounded by okay. uh, news trucks uh, <laughs> because they just <laughs> went down. And then during that same week, Morgan Stanley stock dipped to like from 20 to $5. And, and we weren't sure, like I know that there was a movie about this, which I, I really liked where they were showing how all this was unfolding as well. Because I didn't know that the rest of the industry story, right? I only knew from like from what's happening from the Morgan Stanley. So there's a lot of worrying that the, uh, the, the whole company may go down because of that. But eventually, yeah, once once this bailout happened and sort of the, the stock price stabilized a bit after that, I think after that, there was like a lot of new work just came down the pipe uh, with regulations, with Dodd-Frank and all kinds of what they call them, the fire drills, where you have to prove that you can withstand sort of fluctuations in the market. And I remember a story, someone said like, if interest rates go, this is like, look at one single trade for, for derivatives. It was like, in a, I don't know, 100 million or like billion notion, notional amount. And then if the interest rate go by like up by 1%, the whole company goes down because of this one single trace, right? trade. So that was kind of a environment which is very weird. So it was worrying times, but it passed. So I worked very briefly in the trading world, and this is back in 2014. But I personally kind of liked moving from the finance world into kind of the, the product world. You know, not that finance is not a product, but I just remember looking at Hacker News every day when I was working at a trading company and seeing the people building these these SaaS companies. And I was just like, this looks, I would rather be doing this. But I don't know, what, what's your experience like? comparing working in finance where you're kind of just like playing a big poker game versus the kind of SaaS company world? I kind of had a similar feelings that I thought that there's a lot of cool technological innovation and work that's happening outside of finance. And I myself was on the what you call product side. So I wasn't really even working on any infrastructure problems at, at Morgan Stanley, where I spent most of my time. It was building a trading system, trade capture, processing front end, all of these things. At some point, it became kind of boring because you were not solving technological problems, you were solving more of a business process problems. And 
there is obviously some challenges there, but it kind of became repetitive to me. I wanted really to dive in into more of a distributed systems, infrastructure work. And so that's why I started looking for, for something else. And definitely working at Uber was way more fun, not just because Uber was a startup. I think like if I went to another like more stable, like I know Facebook or Google, but if I worked on the infrastructure team, I would have had as much fun there as well. It's just like that domain is is much more interesting to me than the product side of the businesses. Yuri, thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really fun talking. Thank you very much for having me. It was great. Wow.